Amen. We continue this morning with a series we've been in this fall where we've been talking about building a biblical worldview. And what that is is a a fancy kind of way of saying uh, learning to look at all of life through a biblical perspective. Um, And so we've been doing this through the lens of looking at creation, fall, and redemption. And what that is is looking at creation, seeing that everything that God has made, God made good. He created it good. He took pleasure in it. So there is intrinsic value in things like work and rest and people and creation. But then we also see that because of the fall, the good things that God has made are distorted, fallen, broken by sin. Our relationship to all of these things has been broken, things like rest and work and people. But then thirdly, that God is at work redeeming all things for His glory. He is at work in the world, taking all things that are broken and making them new, restoring them to beauty and wholeness. That is what God is up to in the world, and He's using us, His people, as agents of this redemption in the world. So this is a way to look at everything. Last week we talked about rest, work before that. This morning we're going to talk about children, which is, I think, a fitting subject for us as a church. If you haven't noticed, we've got lots of babies around here. Uh, I just learned this week of four more pregnancies. That's about average around here. Um, As you noticed earlier in our baptism, uh, some are at a faster pace than others, but we're having a lot of babies here. Uh, So we're going to talk about children. And we find ourselves in a culture that is really obsessed with children. We find ourselves in a culture where it's quite natural natural to over-parent our children. Uh, If you've noticed, uh, TV is often a reflection of our culture. And uh, lately there's been these slew of different uh, sitcoms and shows and programs on TV that are talking about parenting, that are talking about children. And in most of these situations you're seeing this this over-parenting dynamic going on. I think about shows like uh, Parenthood, There's a new one out called uh, Up All Night, which I particularly like because I'm up all night often. And uh, I love the scene in one of these where this uh, uh, mother and father have just gotten this infant at home and they're trying to change his diaper and the child is fighting them. And uh, they both say to the child, we are trying to help you. And he says, just put the diaper on it. She said, he... It's stronger than I am. So it's, it's great. It's great. And, uh, you know, Super Nanny, what would we do without Super Nanny? How would we know how to parent without Super Nanny? And so um, you see this all over the place. Recently, I was talking to a friend of mine that has a daughter that he just uh, took away to school. Uh, she's a freshman in college at UT, just started this fall. And they were moving her in. And so this is like orientation weekend. Parents are there moving all the freshmen in. And towards the end of the weekend, the uh, university had a big assembly of all the parents. And the chancellor spoke to them for an hour about leaving. 
Like, it's time for you to go home now. Like, really? Like, you got to leave your kid here. They'll be okay. And so he walks away from that being like, wow, this must really be an issue. If the hour-long assembly, he focuses entirely on trying to talk parents into leaving their children, that it's going to be okay. That's just a reflection of our culture, a cultural moment where we are obsessed with children, where we make them little emperors, where we want to hold them to ourselves and protect them from any harm at all. That is our tendency. Ashley and I feel this, this tension, this difficulty where we feel ourselves wanting to protect them, wanting to isolate them from trouble and difficulty and all the evil of the world, find ourselves wanting to hold on to them and protect them in every way. We feel this tension and this difficulty. And I don't think we're alone. I think we all in our community also struggle with this over-parenting, this tendency to make our children the center of our world. I think that's our tendency. And anytime you make something the center of your world that is not the center of the universe, which is the Creator, it's called idolatry. You make it into an idol. And so that is our tendency. We tend to... We tend to idolize our children. We tend to hold them to ourselves and not be able to let go of them, to try to protect them from any kind of hardship or trouble whatsoever, or to live vicariously through them. That's our tendency. But what we're going to see in our passages this morning is we're going to see that our children, they belong to God. They're His. That's what this was all about just a few moments ago. They belong to Him. He has entrusted them to us to steward them. And what we are to do is to give them away for the sake of the world. To raise them up, to give their lives away, to be a blessing to the world. Our children are for the sake of the world. That's what we'll see in our passages today. So let's jump into Genesis 1, as was just read. If you noticed... Each week that we've started in this series, we've begun in creation. Because as Moses writes Genesis and the creation account, his focus is not just to tell us what happened or how it happened, but why. It shows us God's purpose for everything. And so Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account, is the foundation for absolutely everything that follows. It tells us, what are people for? What is work for? What is rest for? We find all of these things here. And this morning, what are children for? You notice here on the sixth day, the climax of creation, God makes man and woman male and female, into His image. We just read that in verse 27. He said, this is very good. These are my image. Now that would have been a profound thing for the Israelites to hear from Moses. See, Moses writes the book of Genesis just after the Israelites had been drawn out of Egypt. They had been slaves for 400 years. And Moses here is saying to them, do you see, 
you who have a complex of thinking you're just slaves, that we all are the image of God. Now, in their day, that would have meant something very specific. In the ancient world, it was the kings who were regarded as images of God. They called themselves the images of God. And kings in that day, so it was taught, their job was to learn the will of the gods and to enforce it in the world. That was their calling. That's what it meant to be the image of God. And so the Israelites, having come out of Egypt, would have been indoctrinated into this. Pharaoh is the image of God. Not just, not us. We're just slaves. And Moses is saying here, no, no, no. You all are the image of God. His representation on the earth. Royal servants who are called to bring the will of God down to the earth just as it is in heaven. Does that sound familiar? The Lord's Prayer. That's what we're called to do. So we, all, all human beings, are royalty because we bear His image. And so God comes to Adam and Eve, His images in the earth, and He gives them a task in the world. He gives them a purpose and a goal. He says, this is what I want you to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the whole earth and subdue it. Essentially, what he tells them to do is have a bunch of babies, right? Fill the whole earth with the image of God. One of the things, another thing that would happen in the ancient world is that a king would fill his kingdom with his images. You know, he would fill his entire kingdom with statues of himself, pictures of himself, representations of himself, so that no matter where you were in a kingdom, you would see that and you would know who rules there. That was what they would do. That's still done in the ancient world today. Last February, whenever I went to Azerbaijan, which is a, it's in Central Asia, uh, not far from Israel, And uh, one of the things you notice is that the image of the dictator, the ruler, the king, is everywhere, everywhere you go. If you remember years ago, whenever we invaded Iraq, you remember that great scene of the big statue of Saddam Hussein falling. You see, that's what is done in that part of the world, especially in the ancient day. They would put statues in themselves that would represent their rule. So whenever the statue came down, it was so symbolic for those people, saying, His power has fallen. His rule has fallen. And so Moses is here telling Adam and Eve, uh, God is telling Adam and Eve, Moses wasn't there yet, God tells Adam and Eve, I want you to fill the whole earth with my image. To fill it everywhere, so that everywhere in my creation, it's so visible who I am, what I'm like, that my life-giving, beautiful rule would be seen everywhere. I want you to turn the whole earth into the kingdom of God. And the way that you will do it is through my images being filled throughout the earth. So our children are for the world, to be given away to go out into all the places that they would be called and to bring the will of God there for the sake of the world. Just a few chapters later, 
God is replicating this call, this original call to Adam and Eve. He comes to Abraham, who he and his wife had been barren all of their life. Abraham's in his 80s, and God comes to him and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham says, what? I'm 80. Sarah's not far behind. What are you talking about here? And God says, come outside with me. Takes him up, has him look up into the night sky. He says, can you count the stars? That's how numerous your children are going to be. I'm going to make your children as numerous as the sands on the seashore. I'm going to fill the earth with your family. And your children are going to be a blessing to the whole world. See, it's the same promise as we see here in Genesis 1. So what we see is that our children, they're to be given away to the world. Our call is to fill, just like Adam and Eve, is to fill the earth with the image of God and to equip them to go all over the world and bring God's will there, just like it is in heaven, to bring His rule, to subdue it so that it becomes beautiful, so that it flourishes, so that the whole earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the seas, as Isaiah says. That's the call. Now, the problem is, that is often not our vision for our children, is it? More often than not, our vision for our children tends to resemble the same of that of the world. We are hoping for success. So often that's our goals for them. And so our tendency, therefore, is to try to protect them. We feel this obligation to provide them with absolutely every single opportunity that is out there. We want to hold them to ourselves. We want to live vicariously through them. This is our tendency. But what we've got to ask ourselves is, what do we want for them? Because your goal for your children will determine how you go about preparing them for it, right? We have to ask ourselves, do we want success for them? Because if you want success, then you're going to be dominated by providing them every little single opportunity. Every little single thing. Trying to generate this perfect world in which they can be successful. Or do we want them to be faithful? Do we want them to give their lives away in the world? Our goal will determine how we go about preparing them for it. Think about the way, for instance, the military trains their soldiers. What if the military were to say, you know what? We're thinking about changing around this, this whole process here. The military, in training their soldiers, uses this really delightful experience called boot camp. And I've, I've heard it's just fantastic, it's wonderful. It's a day at the park. And what the military currently does in preparing their soldiers for war is that they simulate war. They put them in difficult situations. They generate discomfort. They push them to do things. They put them in seeming danger, but it's while they are under the supervision of superiors where they can watch over them and protect them. They do this to train them for what is ahead. Now, what if the military were to say, you know what, we've been rethinking this boot camp thing. It is really harsh. 
You know, I mean, we're, look at what we're doing. We're making them get up early. We're making them do a run forever. We're, we're doing all of this really mean stuff to them. We're going to change it up, okay? We're, we're going to have classes, okay? We're just going to have really intense, okay, classes where we teach them how to do war and how to persevere in war and how to face and endure hard things. What would be the result? The battlefield wouldn't be pretty, would it? So we, most of the mothers in here right now are really scared, me saying this. I'm not asking you for your home to be boot camp. But what I'm saying is, if we want our children to be able to be in the world but not of the world, to be able to engage the world, to move into places of brokenness and to bring redemption, we have got to change the way that we parent them that we train them. If that's what we want for them, we've got to push them to do hard things. We've got to allow them to be around people that are different from them. Allow them to be around people that have bad habits and bad manners, who live in broken places. We have to push them to be able to handle those things while they're under our care so that we can shepherd them and help them to process it so that whenever they get out of our homes into the world, they're not destroyed by the world. We have to push them to do hard things, to persevere. We have to train them to be in the world, but not of the world. We live in a culture that is obsessed with safety, absolutely obsessed with safety. And if our main priority in our parenting is safety, then we will cripple them to be able to trust God in the world. We tend to think that we can generate safety through building our barriers, through isolating our neighborhoods and our communities from any kind of brokenness from getting them into the kind of school situations and social situations where we keep all the evil out there and prevent it from coming in. We think that's safety. Safety is only found in trusting God. And we can never isolate them from all the evil in the world. And if that is our goal and if we try to do that, whenever they get out of our homes, they'll be crippled by it. Whenever our main goal is safety for our children, it's rooted in fear. And fear has no place with us as God's people. Because God has told us, I am working all things for your good and the good of your children. So we don't have to be so controlled by protecting them. We can push them into situations where they learn how to engage the world, where they have to do hard things so that they'll be strong and so that they'll be faithful and so that they can give their lives away to the world. We have to ask ourselves, what do we want for them? That will determine how we go about raising them. So we see, we see in Genesis 1 and following that our children are four the sake of the world. And if, you, if we want to have children that grow up to give their lives away for the world, we have to be those 
who gives our, give our lives away to the world. Because values aren't taught, they're caught. If we want our children to be passionate about God's kingdom and to give their lives away, we have to be those kind of people. So it means we have to change first and foremost. That's what we see in Ephesians 5 as Paul is calling on the Ephesians, God's new people, to live as a people who are controlled and shaped by the gospel. And this is what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. As dearly loved children. So Paul is reminding us of something here, right? He is reminding us that we are dearly loved children of the Father. That our Father is a God who has sought out His enemies to adopt them as His very own children. For those who are in union with Christ, they have been born again into God's family. Paul says, don't you see? You are a dearly loved child of the Father. His affections for you are more than you can even imagine. His love for you is incomprehensible. You are dearly loved. He knows the full reality of you in your heart, the secrets of your heart. He knows it all, but yet is fond of you. That's what Paul says. You've got to get that. But then realize what dearly loved children do. They imitate their daddies. Dearly loved children love to imitate their daddies. I love my boys. I got three boys. And as I mentioned before, sometimes I love them, I love them too much. But what's funny is they are always imitating me. Whenever there's something broken around the house and I'm trying to fix it, like before I call Charles to come and, and repair it after I've destroyed it, um, whenever I'm trying to fix something around the house... I can always look over my shoulder. You know what I see? Both of my boys with their toolboxes. Walking up, they got their hammers and their screwdrivers, banging on things, doing exactly what I do, imitating daddy. They think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and so they're always saying the things that I say, repeating me, you know, uh, mimicking me all the time, all the time imitating me. Whenever I'm Watching a, a Georgia game with my boys is like looking in a mirror because Hutchinson's sitting there going crazy, and I'm like, oh, man, this is overboard. They're always imitating me because they're dearly loved. This is what happens. And so what Paul is saying here is, do you see how dearly loved you are by the Father, how radically accepted you are by Him? Now imitate Daddy. You know what your God is like? He moves towards brokenness. He is radically generous. He loves to give Himself away. So giving is our God. He gives His only Son. He gives His child away that His enemies might be welcomed into His family. That's how giving He is. How radically loving He is. How full of grace and compassion. Imitate your daddy. That's what Paul's saying. So what does it mean to imitate our Father? Well, right after that, the very first part of chapter 2, he says this, live a life of love. That's what it means to imitate the Father, to imitate God, to live a life of love. 
Now, love is a term that's kind of been hijacked a little bit in our culture. In our culture, love means something that I feel whenever I receive something for someone. You know, it's an affection I have for someone because of my admiration of them. But the biblical view of love is quite different. The biblical vision of love is it is all about giving. Love is giving something to someone else, something that I've chosen to give because of nothing in, in them, but because of what I've chosen. Love is always giving yourself to another. This is what biblical love is. And what Paul is saying is, that's what our God is like. He loves in action, giving Himself away to us. And so to imitate Him means that we live a life where we give our lives away to others, where we disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others, where we move towards brokenness. We move to redeem into all kinds of areas, into relationships and places where people are unlike us, people who have great need of the gospel. We are to be a people who live a life of love who give of our stuff and our time, who forgive, who gives our, give our lives away for the sake of the world. That's what it means to imitate God. Paul can't hardly go two verses without connecting back to the gospel, without connecting you back to what Christ has done as something to be, that is to be applied to every area of our life. Look what he says in the second part of verse 2. He says... Just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul says, live a life of love just as. You want to know what a life of love looks like? You want to know what God's love is most vividly? We see His extravagant love for us most vividly displayed in the gospel. Just as Christ loved us. What did His love look like? He gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering. It was satisfying to God. A sacrifice to take our place. Jesus, in seeing our separation from the Father, in seeing the wrath of God that our sins had incurred, He said, I give my life for them. I see how they've been separated from you. I want them to know you as Father. Take my life. I offer it up so that they might be welcomed as your children, so that they might be loved, so that they might be forever forgiven. I give my life up, a pleasing sacrifice to the Father. Now that is a picture of love. And whenever that gets real for you, that that's not just an abstract event that we like to talk about a lot, but whenever it hits home that He has loved me in that way, knowing the realities of my sin and estrangement from God by nature, and He gave His life up for me, it changes you. It frees you from living for yourself. Christ's love compels you to live for His kingdom and to give your life away for others. For Paul, that is redemptive logic. That is the natural consequence of seeing the gospel for yourself, is that I now live to give my life away, to live for His kingdom. So where's your allegiance? What are you living for? 
What is it that drives you? What do you live for? If we were to ask the average unbeliever maybe, hey, what are you living for? What are your hopes in? What are your dreams? I think they'd say something like this. Well, you know, I hope my kids turn out well. And, uh, you know, I hope to get them, that they get into the right schools and, you know, meet the right person and get a good job and maybe do better than I have, you know. Make a little bit more than me and, you know, a promotion at work, a, a raise, that'd be great. And, you know, we could do a little bit more, you know, we're a little cramped in this house. We'd like a little bit bigger house. And I hope my 401k does well. I'd really like to retire early so that we can kind of do the things that we want to do in our life. That's probably what you get if you just ask the average unbeliever, what are you living for? So what if someone were to ask us, you know, in a candid moment where we weren't thinking of the right answers, what are you living for? What are your greatest hopes in? Where's your allegiance? What would we say? We might say, well, I hope my kids turn out well. Hope they get into the right schools and be great to get a promotion at school, and I hope my 401k does well because I'd really love to retire early and get to do what I want to do. I'm afraid too often the things that we're living for aren't all that different from the world. That our hopes are not so different from the world. Seeing the way that we parent is just another way of seeing what our true commitments are to what we're really living for. But what Jesus says to us here is, don't you see? Don't you see what I've done for you? I've given up my life joyfully, gladfully, gladly that you might be welcomed by the Father and He is now your Daddy who's taking care of you and who will soon bring you into a kingdom where you will reign with Him forever. You have His radical grace, radical acceptance right now. Live no longer for yourselves, but for Him who bought you, for Him who died for you. Jesus is saying, don't live for yourself. Live for my kingdom. And seeing the gospel drives you there. So we've seen in our, in our passage that children, our children, well, they're for the world. They're to be given away. Like all good things that God gives to us, we're just stewards of them. We're, we're to share them with the world. And we also see that for this to really happen in us, well, we got to be those whose allegiance is to the kingdom, who give our lives away to the world. And this isn't just a call for parents. I realize there are many in here that aren't parents, and you might be saying, well... You know, this isn't for me, time for lunch. Now, this is for all of us. Because you see, if you remember what happened up here earlier, I don't know if it just slipped by you, but you took vows. Remember? You took vows before God that said, I'm responsible for these. I'm going to support you in training them to live for, your, for His kingdom. We took vows. This is a community calling in raising these children to together raise this generation that they might live to give their lives away to the world. And so for some of us, that means in the way that we parent. For some of us, 
You don't have kids in the home anymore, but you have a great deal to offer in speaking into the lives of young families. Others of you don't have children, don't have children yet. You have, you have time, you have things to, to offer serve, serving families, babysitting, keeping nursery. For others of us, it's through adoption. All of these ways that together we are called to be about raising children, filling the earth with children who live to bring God's will down to the earth. What if, as a community, that became our vision? To raise a generation of children to be faithful, not just successful, to be faithful, to live totally for His kingdom, and to bring His will into all the areas of this world that they might be called. Oh, that God would make that our vision together as a church. Let's pray together.